Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On the show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in this confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. The national conversation on racial relations is more divided than at any time in the previous few decades. The central question is, what approach should we use to handle racial incidents, divisions, and disparities? In the midst of reactionary positions, my guest on today's show argues an approach that is founded in the Christian worldview, wisdom, as well as sociological research. His name is George Yancey, and I'm excited to have him back on the show to discuss his newest book, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. George Yancey is a scholar on race and religion in America. He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of Texas and began his career studying interracial relationships in multi-ethnic churches. Since 2019, he has been at Baylor University working on a joint appointment in sociology and the Institute of Religious Studies. He's the author of several books, including So Many Christians, So Few Lions, Beyond Racial Gridlock, and his newest one, Beyond Racial Division, a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. Before we dive into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all of the latest content sent directly into your inbox. Visit the link in the show notes and you can get signed up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on your homepage. If you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or shared the show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And also, if you would, write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute of your time, and when you do this, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into my conversation with Dr. George Yancey. George, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, really glad to have you back. I was telling you just before that I've been looking forward to it. Uh, You're (laughs) one of my favorite guests to have on here and uh, one of my favorite scholars and voices to follow, so it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. Uh, let's Thanks. start today. I know that you have this new program going at Baylor, which is where you're on faculty, uh, called the Collaborative Conversations and Race Program. Yes. Uh, tell us about that. What, what, what is that all about? When did it get started? What's the goal with it? Well, you know, part of my thinking is that if we're going to try to have a new way of approaching racial issues, we're going to need to try to work together to develop some resources. Of course, my my lane is doing academic research, empirical evaluations. But we also need to find ways of creating community, uh, learning best practices. And so since I'm fortunate enough to be here at Baylor, I wanted to take advantage of that to create a program where, where that could happen, where people could join, meet like-minded people. Uh, you know, the resources from the joining would help fund re- research on, on this topic. Uh, eventually, if it grows big enough, I would love to start developing some uh, materials, some helpful uh, materials that people can use. One thing I get asked again and again, I don't have a good answer for it, is how do you teach your kids to uh, to enter into the sort of cloud conversation uh, approach as opposed to one of the other approaches? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to find someone who's really good developing materials for kids, which I am not. Uh, to 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 figure out something along those lines, I would love to use it because I have three young ones myself. So that's kind of what I want to do. I wanted to give an institutional framework, and so people who are interested can uh, can join, and uh, there there is a fee for for joining. Uh, but uh, but eventually, as it as it grows, I hope that it it becomes a magnet of like-minded individuals who can get together and, and meet other people and, and figure out uh, best ways of doing things. Or meet people, you're going to a new city, maybe you meet someone from that city who's also committed and find out you know, where they're at. So that's kind of what this idea is. And I, if it grows, it'll start, you know, there'll be interesting evolutions as to what the program becomes. I would just put it that way. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it'll be a, re- a, a center for research, but then also resourcing. Yes, and and context too. 
Yeah. So is the target just uh, any individuals or, you, or is it uh, institutions, churches? Both. Both can join. There, there is an individual membership and there is an organization membership fee. And there's certain, you know, like I'm going to do I'm going to do a newsletter probably in the summers. And so that will go with it. And people will get a price break on, on uh, purchasing the books. So there's certain advantages as well as helping to fund research and helping to meet, helping to create a community where people can dialogue, talk to one another. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I, I've received some of your emails about it and looked into it and really interested to see what comes out of it. For anyone who's listening or watching and interested in this, uh, the program, I'm going to make sure to include that in the show notes so uh, you guys can find the link to the program that they're starting there. But aside from that, we're talking about your latest book today, uh, which is Beyond Racial Division. It's coming out on March 15th. People can start pre-ordering it now. That's something else we'll have in the show notes. Um, I'm assuming you, so if it's coming out now, you wrote this probably in what, tw- late 2020 or yeah, during last year? I, yeah, I, I got started late 2020s doing okay. it. Uh, and so, so that's, yeah, and finished it last year. Yeah. So 2020 with uh, the, the, in the midst of the pandemic, different, um, different events <laughs> in the culture, uh, conversations around race and racial tensions were really, really hot. And I'd say they're they're still pretty hot going through last year. Uh, here we are in early 2022. What would you say? Where are we at right now? Uh, what, what, what's your view of uh, the conversation right now and the broader culture? Well, and I, I talk about this in the book. Uh, we are sort of in this cycle. So the way I describe it is <clears throat> you'll have a racial incident mm-hmm. and then you'll have uh, a protest over that racial incident. And then eventually you get a counter protest and then it's all messed up for a little while. Things die down and you're in an equilibrium until you get another racial incident. So we probably are in equilibrium right now. <clears throat> but the sad part of that is it means we've not made any progress or you've made very little progress yeah. that we'll have another racial incident that will happen. Maybe it'll be tomorrow, maybe next month, maybe a couple of months from now, but it will happen. And then we'll we'll get the upsurge of protests. Then we'll get the counter protests, and then we'll be back at equilibrium. And this is just a cycle that goes over and over again, and it will continue to go over and over again until we figure out how to stop it, how to break it. Yeah, yeah. The only re- recent event that I can think of uh, would be the, and this wasn't. I don't even know if this really counts as a racial event, but the um, uh, attempt to deplatform Joe Rogan over some past comments that he had made. I think that, yeah, that's really yeah. the most recent know. debate that There's, I can think of. Yeah, I think, didn't it start out, though? I think someone found that. I wouldn't count that as a racial event because didn't that start out with something about transgender or something like that? I'm not sure. It started out no, 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 with, with COVID. Yeah, yeah, COVID about, stuff. I'm not a Joe Rogan fan, as you can probably tell. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't care. I mean, I don't hate him. I just mm-hmm. don't ever listen to him. Yeah. Uh, I think it was something about someone had someone about vaccines and people got out of work. So I, don't, I wouldn't count that as a racial event. I mean, yeah. you know. Obviously, some shootings uh, have been racial events. Mm-hmm. There's been protests. Now, here's part of the backlash. Some of the protests at school board meetings, you know, that's a racial event. Uh, sometimes someone does get caught in, into saying something racist, and that becomes a big protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, those are the sort of things that, that we tend to get from time to time. Yeah, so the school board, would you be referencing the uh, the CRT debates in school board yes, meetings? Yes, the, the whole CRT mess. Okay. Yeah, all of that was, you know, I think, I think that's I think that's part of the backlash. Uh, so you could say we still have some of that backlash going on. I think that's sort of receding a little bit, but I think we're going to we're gonna hear from it come in the fall. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so we're going to get more specifically into exactly what is your approach and how it differs, but just while we're talking about the culture and reading the culture. What what is your read of whenever you see like the the debates going on at school board meetings? How do you uh, evaluate and analyze what's going on there and critique it or whatever? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know the debates on the school board meetings. I think reflect the sort of ongoing conflict we have in our society. So we have. And really, the whole thing about CRT is CRT represents certain racial attitudes. And I think some people get it wrong. 
you know, they're arguing, well, you get CRT wrong. You don't understand CRT. And that misses the whole point. It doesn't matter whether or not people understand specifically CRT. CRT represents certain racial attitudes that people either either want or don't want. And when you understand that, then the whole school board fiasco is arguing over what direction are we going on race? Are we going in a direction that is represented by CRT? And notice, I'm not saying CRT itself, but represented by those sort of attitudes. Or are we going the attitudes by those who protest CRT? And th- I think that, that gives you a, a framework for understanding the school board protests. And so how would you articulate what that attitude is? The attitude of CRT? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it's the sort of the D'Angelo. And, and once again, before someone listens, that that's not CRT. I'm not arguing what CRT is. Okay. So before someone picks it, picks it out of context, says George Jansen does not understand CRT. Uh, I'm not saying D'Angelo CRT, but that see, D'Angelo represents the attitudes connected that people see. D'Angelo and Kindi and all sorts of anti-racism, the DEI stuff, you know, all of that is connected to a set of attitudes, a more proactive attitudes on how we deal with racism, a more progressive attitudes, if you will, on how we deal with racism. Those are those are now envisioned when people say CRT. What they don't actually mean is the legal scholarship theory that developed due to Bell and Crenshaw and, you know, and, and Delgado and, and them, what they mean is these sets of attitudes, because most people don't know about Bell and Delgado, mm-hmm. but they know about these attitudes because they, they hear, I mean, who's not heard about white fragility by this point in time? We all have, yeah. and we all have probably a, a decent awareness of what it's about, but, and, and, and so that's how I, I see CRT. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so you have this new book coming out. This one is called Beyond Racial Division. It's not your first book on uh, the the topic. You have a, a previous one called Breaking the Racial Gridlock, uh, and, and and a few other. Yes. Uh, sorry, yeah, Breaking Racial is that right? Breaking no, Racial. Beyond Racial Gridlock. Okay, gotcha. Um, but anyway, so th- this isn't your first one uh, on on this topic. How does this one stand out? What was different from the previous works in this newest book? Well, you know, interesting story on that. So as you as you stated, I was writing this book in 2020. And of course, 2020 is when you had Omar Arbery and when you had uh, George Floyd and all that. And really, I had not really written anything on race for about 15 years. And I really had made the, the big mistake of telling God, I'm never writing on race again. Always big mistake. Don't tell God never. So what I was, so when that happened, it really kind of, for some reason, because these things happen, unfortunately, but some reason it kind of got to me, and I sort of pulled away for a little while, for about four or five weeks. Got off social media, didn't pay attention to the news, and when I decided to connect back, all of a sudden there's a lot of interest in beyond racial gridlock, and the ideas which I kind of had written, believed, still believed, but no one was doing anything with them. So I sort of was, okay, I'm off to my, my own thing now. And now a lot of people were really interested in it. So that eventually led my wife to say, you know what, you should write another book. To which I said, no, I'm not writing another book. I've written a book that was a lot of time, effort, energy to write a book. I'm not writing another book. And so we had a, we had a disagreement. She wanted me to write a book. I didn't want to write a book. We compromised. I wrote a book. So uh, that's how basically Beyond Racial uh, Barriers, I'm sorry, Beyond Racial Division got wrote. To describe it, I think it, you know, I had 15 years between Beyond Racial Gridlock and this book. So my ideas, I think, I did not disagree. I did not change my ideas. I refined my ideas. I also wanted a book where I want to look at the research, even though it's a Christian book, I want to look at the research. I'm not doing original research, so this is not technically an academic book. I want to look at the research and see what research has said on racial issues and see whether or not my my ideas about what would work is supported by the research and whether what other people were doing was not supported by the research or not. And what I found is that 
a lot of what people are doing in order to try to create a better racial situation has very little, if any, research support. But there is support for some of the ideas, even though it's not directly on racial issues that I'm talking about. So this gave me even more confidence that this is the better direction to go. And that's, this is the direction I think that we as a country should go, we as a church should go, we as a church should lead the country in this direction rather than follow the country in a direction that's leading us off a cliff. Yeah. So this might be so getting... that's kind of where I come from on this. I also want to make this book a little more practical. Okay. So I, I try to do that a little bit more than I did on the original book. Yeah. So this might be getting a little bit ahead, but how do you research the effectiveness of these these methods or, or theories? In other words, how do you quantify uh, racial progress? Well, one way, pretty easy, is you could use a pre-test, post-test, follow-up test method. So let's say that you have a group of people that you want to see whether or not your, your treatment's going to be effective. So you do a pre-test of their racial attitudes, other perspectives. You do the treatment, however long the treatment may take, and then you do a post-test. Now, the problem is, if you, do, if you just do a post-test, it's sort of like when you take your kids off to church camp and they come back. You know, they come back and they've cleaned, they're cleaning up their room and they're saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And, you know, they're, 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 they're on fire for the Lord. And then six months later, their room is a mess and they go, oh, pops, you know, and, and, and everything's back to normal. So, did the, I mean, I'm not saying don't take your kids to, to church camp. There could be some long-term effects you don't see. Yeah. But, you don't, but sometimes it's just that that energy of the moment. And what research has shown is that when people do this pre-test, post-test and six months and do it like a six month follow-up or so, that diversity training has no effect on, on, on prejudice reduction. So we're doing, we're doing this sort of diversity training and we've done this. Anti-racism is not new. It was called something else. It was called interracial encounter programs or right, interracial group encounters or, or things of this nature. It's not new. It's just we've changed the name of it. And so we've, we've had a lot of research done on this. And what we call meta-analysis has shown that this research basically shows that it has no real effect on, on racial attitudes. So that's one piece of research that one can do. There's, there's other examples of research, but that's one piece of research that sort of illustrates to us that what we're doing is not working. Oh, and just... To challenge, if someone's out there and they're, and they're saying, I got it wrong, there's a very easy way to correct me. There are, what, half a dozen, maybe more anti-racism books that are fairly popular right now, and not just D'Angelo or Kindy. Uh, there's also, so you, so you want to talk about race. Uh, there's also White Supremacy and Me, uh, The Bridge. Uh, you know, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of books out there. Read those books. What research do they cite to justify what they propose? They'll cite research showing how bad it is. They'll cite research showing, you know, about racism. What research do they cite showing that what they propose will work, will work? And tell me about that. Because if you can find some research, you're a better person than I am because I could not find that research. Not any sort of, other than some small studies that you really can't generalize out there's very little out there that says that, hey, this will actually work. Yeah. Interesting. And so in the book, you're trying to provide a different way from these two other positions that are called colorblindness on the one hand, but then also yes. anti-racism, which you've already mentioned a few times. Before we get into your approach, could you define each one of those, what those mean, colorblindness and then anti-racism, and what's the problem with each one of those approaches? Okay, so colorblindness is the notion that the way we beat race is we ignore race. So I'm going to just treat you exactly the same as I, as I would treat someone of my race, and race doesn't matter. In fact, the problem is when we, when we bring up race and try to make it matter, if, if, we, if we just ignored race, then everything would be okay. Now, colorblindness makes sense if and only if we have a relatively fair society. In other words, if there's no real mistreatment or if we're treating everyone exactly the same in our society by race, then colorblindness might work. But we know there's institutional factors that lead us to treating people differently on race. There's, there's a lot of research on this. There's research that, that shows that dropping them off black is a real thing, that blacks are pulled over more than, uh, than people of other races. 
There's research on our criminal justice system, on how Blacks and Latinos are more likely to be convicted, all of it as being equal, serve heavier sentences, more likely to be arrested. There's research in our healthcare system of showing that there's racism in attitudes and in practices. There's research on, on uh, residential segregation and the pernicious effects of residential segregation that we have. Research on education outcomes, on how people of color, especially Blacks and Latino, uh, Latino Americans, how they suffer in our educational systems. So there's a ton of research out there showing that people of color are not treated the same way. Even if people try to treat them the same way, we have institutions that work against them. Under those circumstances, then, when you're colorblind, what you're basically saying is, we have this wound, we have this problem here, and our solution is we're going to ignore the problem. And as you might well recognize, people of color think, well, that's inadequate. Uh, we have to have something to deal with the problem. So that's why colorblindness doesn't work. Uh, anti-racism, I've already alluded to the problems of anti-racism. Let me just uh, flesh out a little bit more what anti-racism is, because I, I read a lot of the pop books on anti-racism to prepare for my book. And I get, you know, you could probably find some other commonalities, but I'll just boil it down to three commonalities. One, that racism is is pernicious in multiple levels of our society. It's institutional, it's, it's personal, it's, there's a lot of di- dynamics of racism. Two, we'd be very proactive in dealing with racism. And we can't just sit back. We have to do something. It was just those two. The anti-racism sounds pretty good. But three is the problem. Three is the role of whites in anti-racism is basically to do what people of color tell them to do. And if people think that I am not, that I'm exaggerating this, I invite them once again to go to anti-racism books and read. Are there anything in these books that says, look, you know, we want to hear that from the opinions of whites. We want to work together. And a lot of these books talk about whites. In fact, they talk more about whites than they talk about people of color, to be honest. So they're, so they're talking about whites, and what whites are, are to do. They're to give money to their causes. They're to uh, sit and listen and reflect. Uh, they're to do uh, support people of color in what they do and, and not take a leadership role at all. I mean, these are common themes. In, they're to end whiteness. Uh, these are common themes in anti-racism books. So at the end of the day, it's basically whites, the job of whites is to do what people call tell them to do. And then this becomes the core of their teachings and their approaches. And the research has shown that these sort of approaches don't work. Research has also shown that when you try to impose on people things that they don't want to accept, they don't tend, you know, if unless you can, unless you have the power to force them to accept it, then they're not going to. And if you have that power, what happens when you lose that power? Then they, they, if anything, there's a backlash, which to me produces a really interesting problem. So if you have the power to, to force people to uh, do what you want, but only as you have the power that will they do what you want, what does that mean? It means you must keep your power no matter what. How much how much bad, how much damage is but done by humans from the need to keep power no matter what happens? Mm-hmm. So, you know, anti-racism sounds kind of good at the first blush, but it can lead to some really serious problems that we, we have to contend with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's way more that we could <laughs> dig into there, you know, just as I'm, you know, processing uh, everything that you're saying. Um, and yeah, I think you can see how there is, is, is a lot of backlash in our culture. Uh, mm-hmm. not just what you pointed out before in the, uh, parents protests, uh, protesting at school board meetings, but, um, yeah, even in other reactions of people, like you said before, who maybe want to go the opposite direction into, um, into ignoring just any problems that we have and so on. So your proposal to these two different positions is called mutual accountability. Uh, so can you explain what that is? Okay, so here's how I see it. Both the approaches I just described, colorblindness and anti-racism, they have something in common, even though they have totally different solutions. And that something in common is they presuppose that they found the right answers. And the way that we're going to have racial harmony is they're going to make everyone comply to those these answers. 
And of course, that creates all sorts of problems. My solution is we can't force people to comply. What we can do is work with them, listen to them, and in time, forge solutions where we've compromised a little, they compromise a little, we find something that we can agree upon, and then we move forward working to implement whatever that is. It's our solution. This is not, it's not the white man's solution. It's not the black man's solution. It's our solution because we've worked for it. It does mean a change of mindset. And it does mean that we have to let go of the idea that we're going to get our way completely, which I think is a good thing because humans don't work out well when they get everything they want. I don't know if you've noticed this. If you have little kids, you know this very well. So giving people everything they want is not the solution. Having us work together so that we can find something that we can bond together and work, move forward, that is what I think we need to do. You know, I uh, saw a story of someone that, that I've known about called Daryl Davis. I don't know if you ever heard of Daryl Davis yep. or not. Have you heard Daryl Davis? Yeah. Yeah. So he's this African-American man. And so what he decided to do uh, for whatever reason, I forget exactly how he started doing this, is that he met a guy who's Ku Klux Klan. And rather than talk about, you know, this guy's this guy's white fragility or how he's in whiteness or how bad he is, he listened to this man and talked. And, and pretty soon they found they had a lot in common. And eventually, because of his friendship, because Gerald Davis, he's moral suasion, the man left the Klan and gave him his robe and he gave him his hood. According to what I've been told, Daryl Davis has done this 200 times. There are 200 less Klansmen because this one guy decided instead of cascading and trying to force them out of the Klan, I will go and I'll develop a relationship with them and essentially love them out of the Klan. Yeah. 200, 200 less Klansmen. Now, you know, in the big scheme of things, is that a lot? No, but for one man to do that, what, what sort of effect if, if we had more Daryl Davises out there? I'm not saying I was called to go in and, and, and be with the Ku Klux Klan. I'm just saying that attitude of, you know, you're not going to be my enemy. I'm going to find out ways I can connect with you and then persuade you towards something that is better for all of us. It would, it would totally change the way we deal, deal with race. And everyone, if everyone did this, white, black, whoever, Mutual means everyone has responsibility for the conversation. The solutions may not be mutual, but the conversation has to be. Mm. Mm. So what do we do in the conversation whenever we are having a hard time landing in a mutual place? Or I guess we could, we could say, you know, uh, common space over exactly what are the problems and what are the solutions? Yeah, you know, and that's part of what we're going to have to figure out as we go along. You know, because we've not had these sort of conversations nearly enough. I'm not saying we've never had them, but we've not had them nearly enough. We are going to have to uh, try to try to figure these things out. And what I think what I think will happen over time as we we have more and more of these conversations is it's going to for, for, force us to crystallize what we truly need and what we kind of want. And sometimes you got to figure out, OK, do I really need this? Probably not. I want this, but I don't need this. Are we willing to give up what we want to get what we need? I hope we are. So I think that that's something that if we got impasse, seeing whether or not we can sit down and figure out what do we really want and what I really need. I'm certain that there's going to be some times in which we can't find agreement. We're human and that's going to, but maybe if we, if we, even if we can't find total agreement, if we can get closer to one another and figure things out a little bit better. Then even when we can't fully implement a solution, at least we can, perhaps change whatever we do out there to, tr to better reflect the needs of, of people that are around there mm -hmm. uh, and then move forward, you know, and, and hopefully at some point, if, if not in the near future, some point figure out something that will work out for everyone. Yeah. Cause whenever I look at the debates that are happening right now uh, on these issues uh, and I'm, I'm also thinking specifically within a Christian context, I'm thinking of these conversations it seems though often people can't even get to the point of a constructive collaboration or yeah. right. anything they would call mutual because there's, there is just too much debate and uh, argument over the, the core foundation of the discussion, which is just that what is the problem? 
um, on one side, one person will say the problem is um, is racism and uh, systemic racism and whiteness. And the other person on the other side says, no, the problem is CRT, everything that you're saying. Um, and, and so since they can't even agree on what exactly is the issue that we need to work through, it seems like you can never really get to that point. Or they're just going back and forth, arguing over, like you said before, who actually understands CRT and who doesn't. Yeah, defining the problem is going to be an important first step, trying to figure out what exactly the problem is. And uh, trying to, you know, we got, we're going to have to train ourselves in order to do this. So we're going to learn how to listen to other people in a way that is productive rather than just trying to figure out a way we can argue with them. And we're going to have to learn how to communicate with other people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the way we communicate is such where other people literally cannot hear us, that, that they're, they're turned off, they cannot hear us at all. And so we just have to be very careful about that. Yeah. If I ask for this advice, how would you help me? So I, whenever you do try to, from my position at, as a white guy, whenever I try to have a discussion with someone who's, um, who's on the other side of the debate ideologically in, in terms of uh, I'm, I'm not in the CRT camp, but, I'm have, but if I'm having a discussion with someone in the CRT camp and I'm not trying to advocate um, colorblindness, but I just I want to have a mutual discussion like what you're talking about. Um, and but one of the problems that I see at the outset is that it seems as though the person in the CRT camp can't come to the table to have the conversation because they call everybody who disagrees with them a racist. And so I think of a particular interaction I had on Twitter with someone who uh, retweeted or posted a, a screenshot of something that uh, Owen Strayan has said and yeah. called him and all the people he had mentioned in the tweet. Um, I can't remember who all it was. Tucker Carlson, Jordan Peterson, um, the British guy, Douglas Murray, calling Strahan, then all these people, white supremacists and racist. And, I, and so I just replied and I said, I don't think we should necessarily be calling these people racist. Like, I, I don't think they might disagree with you, but calling them white supremacists is too far. Well, then, of course, I then got attacked as being, uh, I, th- yeah. I think the phrase he used was a part of their filth or uh, filthy ideologies or something like that. So someone like me, if you were to give me advice, and I know there's a lot of other people like me um, who've experienced this, how do we try to get that conversation started and get past that barrier whenever any kind of pushback or disagreement you have is immediately at the outset labeled as racism or white supremacy? Okay. So here's a, here's a hard truth and a hard truth that I've had to learn myself. Not everyone's ready for this conversation. Not everyone's even ready to begin to do the work to get into this conversation. My estimate, based on this poll that I saw, my estimate is probably about 20% of the people are so wedded to anti-racism, sounds like your friend is, that they're incapable of having this conversation. Probably about 20-25% of the population is so wedded to colorblindness, they're incapable of having this conversation. So we got to work with that 55 to 60% of the people who are capable of having this conversation. You know, you can't just hit your head against the wall against someone... if a person is unwilling to even consider the perspectives of others, then they are incapable of having this sort of conversation. I am not going to waste my time with people who are incapable of having the conversation. There may be times in which I need to speak out to clarify. You know, I know that when the book fully gets out there, I may have to debate such individuals. But if a person is incapable of having that conversation, then then it's a waste of time. And I'm... Also, I'll just say social media is not the best place for the conversation anyway. Of course. And Twitter might uh, be the worst. Yeah, yeah. I think Twitter is worse than Facebook. Yes, I yeah. agree. Uh, so social media is not the best place. But even if it was, there are people that simply can't have the conversation. And, and I would just accept it as that. I'll also say that one key to where someone can't have the conversation is if they use, and I know that using terms such as white supremacy and calling people racist, white racist, is a conversation stopper. It is not something that you say if you want to have a conversation. And if someone really doesn't know that and you tell them, well, you know, I really can't go forward if you're going to be calling me a racist every time I disagree with you or something like that. And they still keep doing it. They're not ready for the conversation. We have to give ourselves the grace to say, look, this person is not ready for this conversation. 
is a, it'll be a waste of my time. It'll just get aggravated. We'll just both get aggravated. I'm just going to wish them well and uh, move on with my life. Mm-hmm. And I think we just have to do that sometimes. Yeah. There's an added phenomenon to this. And I don't know if you have an answer, but I'll go ahead and throw it out there. In my experience, whether it's uh, me experiencing it firsthand in a conversation or just other conversations I'm witnessing and, and following, it seems as though, and I'd put it at a 85 to 90% of the time, it's white people who are calling the people that disagree with them white supremacists and racists um, far more than I ever see someone who seems to be from uh, a, a, a background of color, whether it be black, Hispanic, or anything else, uh, uh, you're throwing that label around so casually. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think, it, like I said, at least that, that's been my uh, experience and my observation is that it seems as though really, really often, like to me, I think it's 85, 90% of the time, it's white people calling other ones, uh, other whites, or or whether, or my, if it's a black person who disagrees with them, calling them, you know, all kinds of other derogatory names why for, James, yeah, why for, for like disagree that, with him. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Do, do you have yeah, a I, uh, thought on that? Yeah, the, the two most racially progressive groups of people in the country are people of color and white progressives. And I've done some preliminary work, and, and they are, when you, when you ask for different issues, they're about equally progressive to one another. They're, 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 they're just as, and I hate the term, but it, it is useful. They're just as woke. Uh, as each other, so it's not that 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 the people of color are more progressive than the than these than these uh, progressive whites, uh, but the rationale for it has to be different. Because why are people of color racially progressive? Well, for them, as the way that they see it, those issues really help to protect them. Mm-hmm. You know, to protect them economically, protect them socially, things of this nature. Well, that's not the case for these white progressives. They don't need affirmative action in order to protect them economically. They're not looking for it to do that. I think it's a really good question. I mean, I've, I've kind of played around with some research. I, I, I don't have the qualitative data to really back up some of my suspicions. Uh, but I think that that is a really good question. I would kind of agree with you that, you know, I, I'm not going to sign a percentage. And of course you really can't because you only have your circle. And yeah. so that wouldn't be very yeah. valid, but I do tend to think, uh, and there may be a way to test this one of these days. I do tend to think that white progressives are even more willing to throw out uh, the R word racism than uh, the people of color. Uh, I may be wrong on that, but I've seen, a, I've seen a lot and, at the very least, I don't think they're any less likely to, you know, maybe they're not more likely to, but I don't think they're any less likely to, to call uh, people white supremacists or, or, or things of this nature. Uh, I know that people of color uh, who are conservative or who uh, g- give them some degree of pause. Uh, but when it comes to dealing with other whites, they, they uh, are very willing to engage in the sort of, sort of conversation stoppers that are problematic. And so many of them are, are in that camp that they're not ready to have the conversation. Mm. Yeah. What would you, what would you say is the equivalent of the conversation stopper on the conservative side? Oh yeah. All right. So here's the conversation stopper on the conservative side. I don't see race, mm. you know, white pay attention to race because when you say you don't see race to, to a lot of people of color, not myself because I'm just used to it and I've, I, I've developed a thick skin when you say that, what you're saying is this very important part of your social identity is irrelevant. And that's a threatening comment for a person of color. So, yeah, I'm glad you asked. There are conversation stoppers. It goes both ways. And when uh, the sort of dismissal of race uh, is is uh, is one one example, uh, you know, another example. Uh, I remember talking to someone. Uh, about my frustrations with with our ex president, and I brought up you know uh, the episode of of him uh, uh, denying knowing about the the Klan and David Duke, and and when I finally got to the point where he admitted, okay, he doesn't, he doesn't know, he just blew it off. Well, he's just he's just lying. What's the big deal about lying? So I use that as an example when there's a racialized issue, 
and a white person decides to take the race out of it, when the race is clearly part of it, that's a conversation stopper. Mm. You know, at that point, a person of color knows, well, this person does not want to understand how racism impacts me and my society. So why should I go on in the conversation with him or her? Yeah. So those are a couple of examples of conversation stoppers that whites and conservatives use. Mm-hmm. I know the book is uh, still a few weeks out. And so once it get out, gets out there more, you'll have more feedback coming in. But really, everything you're talking about, uh, for those who've been following you, isn't new, I think. Um, I'm not saying there's not going to be anything new in the book, but I'm saying that you, you've been writing and talking about these ideas for a while, your critiques of colorblindness and anti-racism, the mutual accountability model. What have been some of the critiques and pushback you've gotten to whether it be your critiques of those positions yeah. and then putting forward your own? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, the critiques that I've gotten, you know, obviously it's different from whether they come from colorblindness or or people who are advocates of more anti-racism you know people who are advocates of colorblindness think that bringing up race is the problem so clearly i bring up race i think something we have to be proactive we have to deal with and they they have a problem with that they they think that that is a problem i've I've had people who criticize me because i want to raise my kids to be good black men not just good men so things of that nature Mm. uh you know from the from those who are more anti-racist there's a couple of things i hear uh, I hear people talk about how it is not fair for me to talk, expect people of color to enter into conversation because they have so much pain. And because, you know, of their emotional pain, that, that conversation is too painful. And so how dare, how dare I ask them to enter into that conversation? Uh, and then I've also heard that I'm too nice to whites, that, uh, that I, my approach lets them off the hook per se. So, uh, you know, I, I hear those comments. I, I know where they're coming from. I I just come to the conclusion that you can't. It, it's sort of like if you're married and your wife expects you to read her mind. If you're not willing to vocalize, and you can just send people off to read books. Some people read books and get the wrong idea, and then you're mad at them because they got the wrong idea. Uh, if you if you want people to uh, to change, you actually have to do the work. And, and if you can't do the work, then you can't expect people to change. So. It may not be fair uh, that if you're if you have these emotions tied and, and, and you're expected to talk to whites, but that's the way reality is. And we can say it's not fair, but that's the way reality is. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as being too nice to whites, I you know I have no problem critiquing uh, colorblindness, uh, some of the actions of some of the white people who who try to ignore institutional racism. You know, I've been a uh, critique of Christians who I think have, fall, have fallen uh, too ready to accept people who engage in race baiting for their leaders and these nature. I have no problems critiquing whites. What I want to do is dehumanize whites. And if I'm saying, white person, your job is just to obey me, I'm dehumanizing a white person. If I say, you know, whites, you know, I need to, you know, I need to just sort of eliminate whiteness and uh, uh, you know the, the culture of whites and the things they're doing i'm sort of dehumanizing whites i won't do that i will not do that no and if people if if, the, if i have to do that in order to win someone's approval then the cost of their approval is way too high for me because that's the is more than just hurting whites by dehumanizing i hurt myself when i engage in that sort of tone that sort of rhetoric that sort of attack and, and i simply will not do that so, and I, I think this is a better way. And research shows it's a better way. Hmm. Research shows that this approach, and I've had I've had successes, not always, but I've had successes reaching people by figuring out where they're at and 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 talk to them in the language they can hear. So, you know, it's more successful. It's more humanizing. If if being nice to whites is more successful and more humanizing, then I'll be nice to whites. It's, you know, it's not that hard of a deal. Uh, so, so yes, I, so those are some of the critiques I've heard yeah. to, to, to date. Yeah, that that's a weird critique to say that you're too nice to any one group. Yeah. <laughs> Unless the group is, you know, Nazis. Um, <laughs> like, that's a really strange critique. I mean, shouldn't we be kind? Your name was nice to KKK people. Yeah, yeah. He was nice to the KKK. Yeah. Look what he did with that. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's, yeah. It is a strange thing, and I think 
kind of beneath there, something I'm, I'm thinking about or beneath that critique is I'm thinking about what these positions, um, you know, I, I think there's an interesting idea that I've heard before about ideas, which is that ideas are not something that people hold, but something that hold people. In other words, an idea, once it comes into your mind, has a very formative effect on you. What do you think are some of the character forming effects of holding uh, deep in a very deep, committed way, holding one of these positions, whether it be colorblind or saying or racism? You know, I, I had uh, Thaddeus Williams on the show to talk about his book, uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. I think you endorsed that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... In there, in his book and in the show, we talked about uh, the the personality and character impact that holding some of these, uh, like you said before, woke ideas have on people. What do you think? Have you witnessed how these ideas, whether it be the colorblindness or anti-racism, holding on to them just extremely tightly, being deeply committed to them religiously, how have you mm-hmm. seen that affect, affect people, not just in their approaches to racial issues, but also in their their character and personality? Yeah, I, I think in both cases, although for different reasons, obviously, uh, these ideas really, really feed into some of the needs they have, be it racial needs, be it political needs, be it whatever needs. And so I think that's a motivation to hold on to this for people who are colorblind. There's a there's a political motivation, sometimes a racial motivation to ignoring institutional racism so that you have to deal with it. And so I think that that helps to shape a person because I'm holding on to this idea because it serves me. It, it, it takes care of certain needs that I have. And I think the same thing could be said about anti-racism. Anti-racism serves certain needs that people of color have. So in that sense, I, that's how I would characterize how the ideas can drive the human. And I, it gets back to human depravity. We're going to tend towards the ideas that help us the most. And that's human. Once we understand that, then we can understand that to be a child of God, we try to move away from that. And that's why I argue that this mutual accountability approach really is a Christian approach. It's, you know, I can... I can present on this and never mention a Bible verse, never mention, you know, the Bible or anything like that. God, Jesus, anything. I have research to do that. with. Having said that, I think that this ultimately is a Christian approach because in a Christian approach, we understand how fallible we are. Therefore, we need others to check us. Mm. So that's how I would approach uh, this. And that's how I approach that concern. Yeah, I know that we're running close to the end of our time here, uh, but I do want to touch on that before we go. What is your biblical and theological support for mutual accountability? So the way I I look at it is one of the uh, key differences between Christians and people more secular is what is the nature of humans? Are humans perfectible or are humans depraved? Because in the Lyman movement, there's a great movement towards human perfectibility, that if we change culture just right and we socialize people just right, we will create a society that's going to be a paradise because humans are perfectible. We are the pinnacle of evolution. We have abilities and, and, and ways of coping and adopting and mastering. Uh, or are humans depraved? I think the latter is true that we're not perfectible, we can get better, but we're not perfectible, that our our sin nature holds us back, and that we can't ultimately trust our own opinions because that sin nature inhibits our, our objectivity. We want what's good for us and our group, and not necessarily what we're good, what's good for others. If you assume perfectibility, your task is to find the perfect society, the perfect values of perfect norms, and then to sort of socialize people to accept that. If you assume depravity, you can't trust your ability to to find these perfect norms because you know you're depraved as well. So you have to walk, work, you know, crawl together, walk together with other depraved humans, hoping that you can see weaknesses in them and they can in you, and you can move closer to a better solution. So if I was to do Bible verses, there'd be Bible verses on human depravity. 
you know, all, all of sin fall short of the glory of God versus like that. But the philosophy behind depravity versus perfectibility, I think, is what makes this a more Christian approach. Mm. Yeah, and I think that um, the calling that we have in Scripture to uh, being all a part of the body of Christ, um, understanding that we're all, we're all stones being built up into one temple of the Holy Spirit, understanding that we have the gospel, which takes uh, people who are once separated, brings them together, unified in the body of Christ. Uh, two men and two men into one, um, and that we are a temple that brought together uh, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Since we have these resources as well, uh, then we have the grace of God is like a safe context where we can come together and mutual grounds of that experience in Christ. And then uh, we also have the aid of I don't know this isn't something quantifiable, but we have the we have the aid of the Holy Spirit working through whenever we pray and worship together to bring unity so that we can have humility and open-mindedness in these conversations. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, you know, I, I, I thought about this as a concern racial issues, but the more I think about it, this is such a huge dividing line between secular ideology and Christian ideology that it would really change so much of how we see things, how much how we try to solve problems. If we recognize the depravity of humans rather than thinking that we got the answers and we can create this per- perfect society. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of damage has been done trying to create utopias. Yeah. Yes, a lot. Well, a lot more we could get into, but that's why the book is coming out. And so people can get the book. Go ahead and pre-order it so you can get your copy uh, by March 15th, if not a little bit earlier, if the publisher gets it to you quickly so you can read George's book. A lot of great stuff in there. And, uh, and ideas and thoughts, which I think are uh, grounded in biblical wisdom and can help us to move forward so we don't get caught up in, like you talked about earlier, the, the cycles of hot and cold tensions and so on. So, George, I just want to thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Once again, here on Filter, as always, I loved our conversation. I got a lot out of it, and I know that our listeners will too. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.